You remember more about that course you took in college than I remember about any course maybe I've ever taken. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, I, don't, I don't know that I can, I don't know that I can say that I remember that much about all of the courses that I took in college. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics, controversies, and scholarship dealing with bioethics, medicine, technology, and anything else we're interested in. We're your hosts, Devin Stahl from Waco, Texas. And I'm Tyler Gibb from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And yes, that's a real place. So Devin, I have a question for you. Okay, shoot, Tyler. Have you ever been to summer camp? I was going to ask you that question. So I was watching Crip Camp and I thought, I never went to summer camp and it made me really want to. I want to go back in time because it looked so fun. They're singing at night together over a campfire. It made me nostalgic for something I've never experienced. Did you ever do summer camp? So I never went to a sleepaway camp similar to the one that was in the movie, uh, but I was in Boy Scouts, and so we would do a similar kind of uh, camp experience every summer, much less making out. <laughs> Fair enough. So what was your favorite part about those camps? I wasn't a very good Boy Scout, so I didn't enjoy very much of it. What I did enjoy a lot was, like you said, the camaraderie and the everybody by the end of the week was just absolutely filthy, and they stunk, and they had kind of had this growing experience together where by the end of the camp you had friends who you thought were going to last for the rest of your lives and had this shared experience almost like a boot camp or a, a hazing a week of hazing joining a fraternity or something like that a lot of singing a lot of really bad food and a lot of uh, dangerous activities that in retrospect probably shouldn't have happened <laughs> i don't know if that makes me want to do summer camp more or less but i love the stinky part i love that you all just got really stinky together <laughs> Really sneaky. Because if there's one thing that teenage or adolescent boys are good at, it's being dirty and not taking showers. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for my son to hit that point. This movie that we're going to talk about with Professor Stramondo is called Crip Camp, right? And it was put out this summer, 2020, by Netflix. Also, I think the producer credits uh, include the Obama Foundation. When did you first hear about this movie? I heard about it. I think I saw some trailers for it right before it came out. And it looked just so fascinating because I, even though I do know a lot of disability history, I don't think I realized that so many huge figures of the disability movement went to the same summer camp, which is just totally delightful that this is the place, like they went to this gen ed summer camp, they found this solidarity they became such good friends. They kept in touch, which like you said, people always promise to keep in touch, but I'm not sure that that always happens, but they actually did it. And then they started this amazing movement, building on those friendships and those connections. And how about you? When did you hear about the movie? So I remember vaguely hearing about the, like a trailer or something on, on Netflix a couple of months ago, but I, it kind of went in and, in one ear and out the other. I watched the movie last night with my wife and one of her comments was, how did these people stay in touch with not having cell phones, not being able to text, whatever, you know, was it a phone tree or was it e letters that they had sent? It was just really a fascinating 
glimpse into that time period. And it was just really fascinating. I thought the the amount of kind of archival footage that was able to be used set the tone for the, the movie. I, I really enjoyed watching it. Oh yeah, it's incredible they had all that footage and it helped so much to sort of imagine it because I don't know that you would have been able to really picture it without all that amazing footage and they just look like they're having the best time. And you could say that, but to watch their pleasure and delight in one another is lovely. Yeah, it was such a personalizing portrayal of this camp, obviously, and, and the implications of the, the really good work that came after that by these campers. As I was reflecting upon the movie, one thing that I thought was really you know, lovely about it was I'm sure that there are people who knew these individuals, um, maybe in passing, maybe in school, maybe around the neighborhood, who had never known this part of their lives. And maybe it was family members who didn't know that this camp was around or and be able to see, like you said, that joy that these individuals were able to experience in their community up in this camp was just a treasure. Mm -hmm. Good. So I'm sure we'll have a really fun time talking to Joe about how he experienced this and, and to see, hopefully he had as good of a time watching it as we did. Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Today we're talking with Dr. Joseph Stramondo, who is a professor of philosophy at San Diego State University. His interest and background is in the philosophy of disability and bioethics. So thanks for being with us, Joe. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Joe, we know some of the work that you do, but we want to ask you first, do you consider yourself a bioethicist? Yes. I, I think that, you know, um, there's various ways to conceptualize how to carve up the various subspecialties within philosophy. Bioethics is definitely my niche, uh, first and foremost. So yeah, I think I would think of myself as a, a bioethicist. It's interesting to listen to everybody respond to that question so far in, in these episodes. And everyone has a little bit different take of what, what it means and, and how they got into it. So uh, tell us your story. How did you get into, interested in bioethics? I got interested in, in bioethics initially just because it was a lot of fun. I was taking a course of study uh, in my undergraduate days, and I, I started off with sort of a, a general humanities kind of great books kind of uh, education at a liberal arts college. I fell in love with philosophy first, but once I took a, a bioethics course, I saw how the tools of analytic philosophy could be used in a way that mattered to people's lives in very concrete ways. One thing that I love about bioethics specifically is that it has very concrete, high-stakes implications for everyday life. Um, I was taking a medical anthropology class at the same time as I was taking my first introductory bioethics class at the undergraduate level and started to make connections between readings that I was doing in the medical anthropology class about the social construction and cultural construction of disability. And some of what I was reading about quality of life judgments and how those came into play within the bioethics literature. It's funny you say that, Joe, because uh, Tyler and I were actually just having a conversation about he also got into bioethics through a medical anthropology class. And I've actually never taken one. What is medical anthropology? Medical anthropology, I'm, I'm not an anthropologist. And so <laughs> I, I think uh, there, there's only that one uh, anthropology class I've ever taken. Um, so it's uh, it's not as if I can claim some kind of 
uh, expertise in the intersection between bioethics and anthropology. But as, as far as I understand it, medical anthropology looks at biomedicine as a, a cultural phenomenon, as something that is culturally mediated and not just some kind of always objective scientific practice. It was, uh, it was really something that opened a lot of windows up for me into an understanding of my own experience of disability as a, uh, a cultural thing and a political thing and a social thing and not nearly sort of a, a medical thing. So I, I got interested in bioethics kind of the, through the same route of medical anthropology. Um, but what was interesting to me was this idea of medical pluralism where biomedical science isn't the only paradigm of illness or wellness or treatment. And I was blown away by the idea of traditional healers and other cultures that approach medicine and healing and even just the idea of what illness is from a completely different perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that last bit, this question of what illness is, um, is a hotly contested question within philosophy of medicine. So Joe, when you tell this story of how you got into bioethics and how much it intersected with disability, I think I have a similar story and I thought, wow, if I move into the field of bioethics, I'm gonna be able to do so much work in disability and come to find out that was not true. <laughs> I was seriously misled. It's actually a pretty marginal conversation in bioethics to really delve into what disability is and what it means, especially in the ways it might intersect with disability studies. So is that your experience too, or how do you see those discourses talking to one another? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's interesting that you said that um, when you first got started, you approached the field with the idea that you can do a lot of work within uh, bioethics from the perspective of uh, disability studies. And I think that's actually true. I think that you can do a lot of work. Um, there's a lot of work to be done, in other words, <laughs> um, within the field of bioethics that takes a, uh, a more sophisticated view of questions around disability. But uh, I think it's also true, the second part of what you said, about how uh, oftentimes um, work around disability is held toward the margins. I think that, you know, we, we see that in practice in a variety of ways. I think that we see, you know, a, a lot of bioethics literature that characterize folks that take the perspective of uh, a critical disabilities studies as activists, as folks that are advocating for a position. And if there's one way that a bioethicist can diminish or discount an opposing perspective, it's to label it as an activist perspective. And I think it is intellectually dishonest to say that all bioethics is not in some sense activist bioethics. There are dominant voices that are advocating for a dominant point of view, but that doesn't make them objective. That makes them popular. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so um, I, I think when you have others like you and I that challenge some of those taken for granted commonsensical views and uh, you know, our, our challenges are uh, labeled as activists challenges or as advocacy rather than real bioethics. Um, I, I mean, I think that's, um, that's really a uh, example of uh, epistemic injustice of, of trying to diminish or marginalize a, a certain point of view by 
attacking the the testimony of the the person providing that view by sort of diminishing their status as a knower. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And I think a lot of listeners might be surprised because a lot of people will say to me, oh, you do bioethics, so you must really care about people and want to help them. If you weren't in bioethics, you'd think that's what we all do. But there are some people in the field who don't see themselves that way, which does seem a little bizarre. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I'm not sure that I necessarily see myself that way. I mean, I do, of course, care. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, if, if uh, you know, it's, it, I care in a deeply personal way, you know, with, with you know, what's happening with COVID right now um, and some of the work that you and I have collaborated on, Devin, um, to sort of talk about discriminatory practices within triage protocols and, and so on and so forth. You know, I absolutely care. I see that people's lives are at stake that, you know, disabled people are unfairly discriminated against. You know, they don't have a fair shot at just sort of having the, the basic necessary requirements for survival met. And I think that that's horrible. And my motivation is a deep care for, for people like me, basically. I think it's interesting um, that you say that because one thing that's always bothered me, particularly in working in a medical school where you have a lot of like, grand rounds presentations coming through and inevitably there's always the first slide of a declaration of conflicts of interest, right? And it's generally seen as a financial conflict of interest. But I saw a presenter not too long ago say, I don't have a financial conflict of interest, but I really care about these things that are going to impact me. So I clearly have a vested interest in what I'm going to talk about, in the argument Mm -hmm. that I'm going to make. And I thought Mm -hmm. that was an interesting perspective that I might uh, try to crib a little bit. I think that's great. And I think that it's deeply honest. I think that anybody who does research in this field should be saying that. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think that is uh, particular to folks at margins that are writing about uh, themselves and people like them. So Joey, really want to ask you about this new documentary that has come out, maybe not so new anymore, actually, a few months old now, but Crip Camp. I watched it and I absolutely loved it, unless you say you didn't love it, in which case I will go back and edit that part of the podcast <laughs> out. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on you know, what it meant to you or what struck you about it in terms of what you do in both in philosophy and in bioethics. I did love it. I absolutely loved it. I think that the thing about Crip Camp that really struck me as an important contribution is the way that it took the history of the disability movement that has already been documented in other places like Joe Shapiro's great book, No Pity, and so on and so forth, and really emphasized the stories of the people that were involved and how those people built solidarity amongst themselves. The disability community is dispersed across all sorts of other communities. It's a community that you really have to build. I I do think that it's a real problem within the disability community that people are motivated to not identify as disabled. That, more than anything else, harms the political power of the disability movement. And so the thing about Crip Camp that was so cool is that it really 
highlighted the ways in which people can come together and find common experience with different disabilities. The sort of the project of solidarity building is the work of, of the disability movement. And I, and I think that that really came to the foreground in Crip Camp. And Joe, are there any criticisms that you have of the film? I think criticism of Crip Camp that can be leveled and that has been leveled in various places that I've seen it is that it showed the limits of that solidarity as well. And that it showed that at least in the early days, how that solidarity was not built across the full range of disabled people. It very much emphasized folks with mobility disabilities, folks with sensory disabilities, and didn't do as much to emphasize folks with other kinds of experiences of disability, like psychiatric disability, like intellectual disability. Likewise, it didn't arguably do enough to emphasize solidarity building across racial divides. Um, and, I, and I also know that this is something that the filmmakers are, are keenly aware of. You know, this isn't something that's, that I'm saying that's, that's new to them. And I, and I think that it's something that the disability movement even now struggles with. Uh, we need to do a better job of not holding certain folks at the margins of the movement itself when it comes to the kind of disability that they might have, but also when it comes to their intersecting identities. I first came across that idea of, I think it's, I think it's referred to as intersectionality, mm-hmm. where there's this overlapping ideas of, you know, somebody can be marginalized or discriminated against for multiple different reasons. Like, like you said, a person of color has a very specific type of experience based upon their, their race or their ethnicity, but also if they're disabled, they have this other layer of uh, discrimination or lived experience. I mean, I think there's a, there's a distinction sometimes made within both the activist and the, the sort of disability studies discourse between disability rights and disability justice. And uh, the, the distinction that's, that's made there is that the disability justice perspective centers the voices of intersectionally multiply marginalized folks. And so it asks the question of, you know, what does access mean? Not from my perspective, but from the perspective of someone who isn't cisgender or isn't straight or isn't white or isn't a man and so on and so forth. And so when you, when you sort of shift the frame, it's been called disability justice instead of disability rights. And I think that that's really a critically important thing to do that we need more of within the disability movement. One point that in the movie that I thought was really interesting was where you had the couple who had met at this camp and they were talking about almost a hierarchy of different types of disability where they referred to individuals who had polio as being more preferential as far as like a a life partner than somebody who had other types of disabilities. I think the phrase was used, couldn't you find a polio or something like that. Um, So I'm just wondering about your response to that that idea or that part of the movie. If I'm remembering correctly from the film, the folks with polio perhaps were seen as more desirable because they could speak well. They were held in contrast to maybe some of the folks in the film with CP that had speech-related disabilities. I think that that is just sort of a, uh, a way to highlight how 
all disabilities are not created equal when it comes to the ways in which disability is stigmatized and that the speech patterns of someone with CP, I think, are very highly stigmatized because in our sort of popular culture, they're taken to represent intellectual disability. Part of this phenomenon of, you know, couldn't you find a a polio has everything to do with the ways in which people with intellectual disabilities have been sort of held at the margins of the mainstream disability movement. So Joe, what are your hopes for kind of the future of bioethics as it begins to, and I think this is true, I think bioethics is beginning to take disability voices more seriously. So what do you hope for the field in terms of how you integrate those two discourses? I do think that that the field is starting to take bioethics uh, from the disability perspective more seriously. I do think that there's still a ways to go. When I applied to PhD programs in 2007, I was looking at the field and I noticed that there were some people that studied bioethics and disability. I also noticed that none of them, not a single one, was an actual disabled philosopher studying bioethics at a PhD granting program that could be my dissertation advisor. That is still true today, a decade and a half later. That's a problem. (laughs) We, We don't yet have access to the highest levels of power within the profession to be really influencing the way the profession evolves by being dissertation chairs. And so I think that would be the, the central focus of, of my vision for the future, to make sure that d- disabled people are doing the work, right? Nothing about us without us. Thanks, Joe. I think you're right. That's so important. And I'm so glad that there are people like you who are teaching the next generation and who will hopefully come up more sensitized to these issues and producing more people with disabilities who are going to take up these issues, who can one day become chairs of their department and thesis advisors so we can get more of this perspective into bioethics. So thank you so much for being with us today. You bet, of course. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bioethics for the People. Special thanks to Chris Wright for writing our theme song. For show notes and more episodes, go to bioethicsforthepeople.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. My, my daughters were like, what blooper are you going to do this time? And I was like, I don't intend to mess up. I don't <laughs> intend to look like an idiot. So I told him that you just, you just have a lot of material to work from. And <laughs> pick up something.